this time, Sir Stephen Andrews, if you will come with our sermon, What is World? Once again, oh, once again, I forgot to turn on my mic. <laughs> I knew as just soon as he, ah, he said that back there in the back. Uh, once again, I've been wandering through the dusty books of the um, antique store. And uh, they're not so dusty because they kind of go on and off those shelves pretty quickly. But anyway, I found an interesting book called Understanding the Times. And I saw, it's, a, it's such a big book, you know, it's hard to, hard to miss, it was sitting on the shelf, and I, so I picked it up, and it was very interesting. As I picked it up, it, it was, some of the first words in it were worldview. So I asked, what is worldview? So I had to find out. <laughs> so I bought the book, and um, it, it's by David A. Noble, and it's a, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, thought and process that he has gone through and he even has a ministry that is a, a, essentially the same thing of uh, developing this idea that in the world you have different worldviews. If you're a young person that lives in Russia, you have a different worldview growing up underneath the communist um, regime than we have in the United States. If you're a young person that is of the Islamic State, and they hand you, as a five-year-old, and they strap a bomb on you, and they hand you a, a rifle or an automatic uh, uh, gun, you have a different worldview than we have in the United States. It's very interesting, the idea that all over the the world, there are different worldviews. In this particular book, he has separated the, the worldviews into three categories. He separated it into the Marxist, Leninist, communist worldview, the humanist worldview, and of course the Christian worldview. And within those worldview um, areas, he's also separated it into categories, which is kind of interesting. Because if you think about it, we all have, um, especially as we grow into adulthood, we have a certain amount of understanding about certain things. So within those, there is the, the, the categories of theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, Law, politics, economics, and history. And so he breaks those all down into those, into those various categories. And it's interesting that in the categories of Marxist-Leninist and humanism, what would you think actually makes the groundwork of their worldview? It is Darwinian evolution. Under biology, I'm just reading, this is a huge book, there's a lot of information in here. And I'm just reading just a little bit. This was under the heading of biology, under the section of the um, secular humanism, because that's what he's talking about. Here's what the summary is, and there's a lot of information in here, but here's the summary. Without the theory of evolution, there is no secular humanism. Humanists believe that three to four billion years ago, the first speck of life came into existence by the series of accidental, accidental combinations of chemicals and energy, probably lightning, that is, the first speck of life survived and reproduced itself, and that this reproduction continued and by continuing improved this life and until ultimately a cell was produced. Some evolutionists believe the time required to move from first life spontaneously generated and on and on and on. And I, I, you know, I could read all of that, we're all very familiar, but that's Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species and other books that he's written. Most humanists implicitly trust Darwin's explanation 
Although some believe Stephen uh, Jay Gould's more radical theory of punctuated e equilibrium and approach that portrays the evolutionary process as long periods of stasis, no change punctuated by short spurts of rapid change. So we're all familiar with these. But this is, their, this, this is a worldview, and this is also how these ideas and these thoughts are, are generated in our own society and in the world. Now, if you're growing up under the Marxist-Leninist, uh, communist uh, worldview, here are some things that they also, through Karl Marx, Marxist-Leninism depends on the theory of evolution. Karl Marx made it very clear that Charles Darwin's origin of species contained the scientific basis for his views on the class struggle. Some even define Marxism as Darwinianism applied to human society. Just as the theory of evolution explained how man arrived on the scene from a molecule, so the theory also explained how society evolved. The major trouble with Darwin from the Marxist perspective is Darwin's slow, gradual process of natural selection. <clears throat> of course, Marxists want it, to, want it to be rapid. And I'm not going to read the rest of that, but I want to read uh, one thing here in, the, in this particular worldview. This is more reasons why Marxism embraces evolution. Evolutionary theory can be interpreted in many different ways to bolster the Marxist claim that their worldview is scientific. Various Marxists have cited the theory of evolution as a basis for the inevitability of revolution, the need for individuals to form collectives, the Marxist view of labor role in the economy, and the materialistic philosophy. If any of you have read the Tim Planks of the Communist Manifesto, you know what we're talking about. You know, there's those planks really <laughs> are the basis of, of all that what it, I just summed up there. Stalin claims evolution prepares for revolution and creates a ground for it. Revolution consummates the process of evolution and facilitates its further activity. Apparently, he draws his conviction from the doctrine of the survival of the fittest. And by the way, that's also the, what Hitler had based his Aryan philosophies on was the Darwinian thought process. So he had a worldview the same as they did. Okay, survival of the fittest. We're the fittest. We're going we're to we're change the world. We're going to take it over. And so interestingly enough, these, um, and there's a lot more to this book, and I'm, I'm not going to take any more time into that, that area. What I want to do, though, is I want to find a place in the Bible where we look at a wor the worldview um, in this particular area, uh, and it's the first worldview. <laughs> and, and it's in the book of Daniel, and of course we understand the first king, the first world ruler of the known world at that time was Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things we find from this world, any time that you have a revolution, any time you have a, um, someone that wants to take over the world, you, you have these, these things that happen. First of all, you, you have to subjugate your, your subjects. You have to gain control some way, you know, by internally changing things or by force, by force, taking it over. Once you have it taken over, then you, then you have to convert them. You have to change their way of thinking. Um, you have to, and sometimes that means changing uh, names, changing their, their thought processes. I mean, if, if Hitler had won, imagine what the world would be, would be like. I mean, we'd all be, either, you know, there would be no Christianity. There would be nothing. They would, they would rule over, over everything. But God stepped in, thankfully kept that from happening. We're, we're blessed in that area. The next thing, brainwashing or conversion, you know, or education. They would have to educate people in, in, in their way of thinking, in their worldview. Just like the Islamic children right now are being in that um, ISIS society. They're bring, being brainwashed that they have a heavenly uh, thing of, to look forward to. <laughs> And so if they sacrifice their life by being blown up or being or killed in war or something, they have something great to look forward to. 
And then the last thing is uh, they, you have to be subservient to it, don't you? You have to bow down to that world uh, situation. So, and I didn't mention the, the, the Christian worldview, but we understand that there's uh, more than one way of looking at that Christian worldview. We have what I would call a biblical worldview, a, a godly biblical worldview, not necessarily altogether a Christian worldview because there's, there's a lot of, of way, ways of looking at uh, through the Christian worldview. But Christians around the world are sacrificing their life for what they believe. Some people are sacrificing their life just for, because they believe in the name of Jesus. And they believe that he's the savior of the world and they're, they're losing their life because of that. They're standing up for what they believe. And so, as we look at this, this world ruler, we, we see these very points, don't we? Let's, let's go to Daniel now and let's, let's step in there. As we look at Nebuchadnezzar's worldview through the book of Daniel, and Daniel was uh, good enough to write it down for us so that we could we could understand this, the very first world ruler, and also one in which God intervened into. Interesting, isn't it? And he, he fit all of these. He fit all of the, these, these various uh, worldview points that I was talking about. He went in, he conquered. Here, here we, we see in the first chapter, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim's king of Judah came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it to Jerusalem and besieged it. He was out conquering, making his world view known to whoever got in his way. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So he didn't, he, in fact, he told them, don't fight. Because I've given them, you know, you've sinned, I've given you into his hand. So, so don't do anything. Give up into the hand and part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried in the land of Shinar to the house of, of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now remember, part of, of this worldview is, it includes all of these various areas. It, it includes the theology, the, the various gods that they worship, their philosophies, their ethics, their biology, however they, whatever they had. So all of these are are part of their worldview. And as you read Daniel, those things kind of step out and kind of, uh, you're, you're kind of faced with those. And the king spoke to Esphenaz, the master of the eunuchs, and he said that he should be certain of the children of Israel, of the king's seed, of the princes, and that was of the royal family, the children of whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding and science and such as have the ability in them to stand in the king's palace in whom he might uh, teach and, uh, the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. So you see, the, you, <laughs> you bring in the leadership and you, and you convert them. <laughs> you teach them the language. You convert them to this way. He was not ignorant. Nebuchadnezzar knew how to subvert people and bring them into his way of thinking and bring them in. But Daniel and his, and the, and his friends were very, very wise. The king appointed them daily provisions of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them the three years that they, the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now, uh, among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, we, we don't know uh, Daniel's three friends by that. We know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because of that song. <laughs> you know, they got in our heads and we couldn't get it out. But one of the things that, that happened is they gave them new names. Isn't that interesting? To whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, uh, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, uh, Abednego. And most of those had some connotation towards their, their way of, their worldview, their gods, their, their thinking. So that they would, they would fit in to the society that they were being brought into. So that they 
could influence others in that society. But Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested that the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor of the tender love of the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse lightning than the children which of your sort? Then shall uh, you make uh, him endanger my head to the king. It's interesting that even in the situation in which Daniel and his friends were in, they stood up to the society that they were in. Now, you might lose your life. You might lose your life, but it is important to understand that it, it's better to lose your life and not your soul. <laughs> That's what it amounts to. Because they would have been, they would have been you know, sacrificing their soul to the, to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll see that as we go through this. We, and, and you'll see how they, how they were able to stand up under, the, under great pressure. And God blessed them because of that. You know, someday we may, in this society, because I know the worldview is beginning to change in, in our own particular society, and it's, it's sad to see it. We've had such a beautiful country and all the things that we've had in this country. And it's... It seems like there is more and more um, that are trying to change this society for the worse. And, and, and minorities, minorities are imposing their worldview on the majority of, of Americans through the courts, through the liberal society that we live in. And that's how you do it. You either subvert them underneath or you subvert them above and you know, take them over. I remember uh, when um, Khrushchev was in was the uh, the premier or however what do they call the the leader like Putin is today. He was in the UN and he took his shoe off and was pounding on the table. And some of you who are older remember that. I will bury you. I will bury you. And of course we all you know there's no way. We have all and yet we see the undermining through these things of the communism. Uh, just infiltrating our country and, and the worldview changing our own country. So we have to stand up. We have to, why, that's why I'm reading Daniel today. I want you to be strengthened to understand that there is a God who can stand with you no matter what the situation is. And as we heard in the first message, you know, God's there he, he, and waiting on him in, under, in different situations. So let's, let's go on. Let's see how Daniel and his friends actually get through some of these things. And, over, and, and not only that, but they become a part of the society and change because God was with them and the power was with them. Okay. Let's pick it up here um, in verse 11. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Prove your servants, I beseech you. Ten days, let them give us pulse. And that was vegetables. They want to give us, or we want to become vegans. We don't want to eat the, the, the king's meat. To eat and to, and to drink water only. Then let our countenance be looked upon before you and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. As you see, deal with your servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. At the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter than the flesh of all the children which did eat the king's meat. So there were others. Some had fallen into the, the, the trap, had not, fallen, had not followed Daniel. Some had fallen into that trap. Thus Melzar uh, took away the portion of the meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them that, those vegetables. They gave them that vegan diet. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding of all visions and dreams. Remember what he, that they were selected because of why. They were selected because they had no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom. 
and cunning and in knowledge and understanding and science, and such as had the ability of, in them to stand in the king's palace. So they were very articulate. So they were very, very good representatives. For God to put them into this first world leader's world view. And Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he was, he was a conquering um, king. He was an emperor. He was a king over that world that was known at the time. He had all the power. He could do whatever he wanted. He said, now at the end of the days, the king had said he should bring them in, verse, um, uh, verse 18. And then the prince of the eunuchs brought them to, before Nebuchadnezzar. The king communed with them, and among them was, all, uh, was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. Because of their keeping God's truth and way, they were favored and not giving in. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king required of them, he found them ten times better than understand what, around, what was around the king. What was around the king? Magicians and astrologers, pagans. The world view of Nebuchadnezzar was based on idolatry and paganism. And here we have children that God had, was blessing with wisdom and understanding to bring it before this king. And Daniel, he continued even unto Cyrus. I mean, he was, he was part of this kingdom even unto Cyrus. Now, it wasn't without problems, was it? Because if you stand up for what you believe, you might have to actually sacrifice your life for that belief. Or you might go to jail, or you might have severe persecution because of those beliefs. Well, we, we find that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got into that situation because Nebuchadnezzar, oh, he was revealed a beautiful dream, wasn't he? Oh, this is a wonderful dream. Let's go to the verses 37 through 45 in, in, um, in chapter, chapter 2. You, O king, I'm just breaking in on this because he's already revealed the dream one time and he's already said, you know, he's got all these people coming and trying to, uh, you know, give him this dream. But he brings Daniel and Daniel gives him the interpretation. You, O king, are king of kings, for God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. Verse 38. Wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and fowls of the heaven has he given unto your hand and hath made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. So he had this, this great statue. This great statue would reveal all the kingdoms that would come down through the ages. And he was the very head of that, of that statue. And after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, and another, the third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as it breaks in pieces and subdues all things as iron that breaks all these shall break in pieces and bruise. And so we, we understand that the, that was the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and then the Roman Empire which split into two. And this is the two legs that we see. And so we have this great uh, statue with all of these parts that, he, that, the, that we have. Now, Daniel also reveals the future in this very great statue, which is very interesting and very profound because God gave him insight into this, uh, this very, uh, these world rulers and, and this very end time. So, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, verse 40 again, for as much as the iron breaks in pieces and seduces all things, as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Whereas you saw the feet and toes were part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of iron for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so shall the kingdom be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave 
one to another. Even as iron is not mixed with clay, it's going to not be a very cohesive thing, but it's going to be powerful at the end. It will have a great deal of power. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now this is the worldview that we should have, brethren. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's happening, no matter what's happening anywhere, we should have the view that the kingdom of God will come to this earth and be, and we will be a part of it. And we will have an, uh, our part in this kingdom. The kings, <clears throat> in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the king, kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And look at what it says there. No matter what, what has been um, left from these kingdoms. Because Babylon, remember, is the, was where the, some of the Babylonian mystery of religion started. And we have all of these kingdoms had false gods, um, all kinds of, of false things in their kingdoms. They were idolaters. They were all false. They were not God's kingdoms. And when God comes, he's going to destroy all of that, and all of that's going to be wiped away. That's what it says. That rock that's cut out will destroy all of this. For as much as you saw the stone, verse 45, that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. And we know that those kingdoms have come all the way down to the Roman Empire, and up to today, we are still looking for the return of Christ because that last part has not come to, to pass yet. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, let's see if I get all, yeah, I got all the way to where I wanted to go. And sorry, he, instead of <laughs> worshiping God for the interpretation he worshiped Daniel gave him all kinds of honor and glory and stuff but we find out that he was so impressed <laughs> with that interpretation that he went ahead and made a great big statue a very large statue that everybody could see and uh, anytime a bell rang or an instrument was played or anything that you heard and you didn't turn to that statue and bow down and worship it, <laughs> you had a problem. And you had to either stand up or you had to, to bow down. So you have to make a decision. So we have these th three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Beginning in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said to them, it is, is it true? Because they wouldn't bow down. And I'm, I don't want to go through all the stories because I don't have enough time for everything that I, I have. And there's so much that we could, we could talk about today. But they wouldn't bow down. And so he asked them, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not you serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Come on now. This, you know, he was the king. You've you got to worship my stuff. Now, if you be ready that at what time you hear this, I'm going to give you an extra chance. At what time you hear this, the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, all kinds of music, no matter what, you fall down and worship the image, which I have made, well, but if you worship not, you shall be, this is the penalty, you shall be cast that same hour in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you? This was a challenge. This was a challenge, and it was also something that was on the heart of these three men. And here's what they had to say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not at all careful with this, to answer you in this matter. We already know. If it so be our God whom you, we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. 
This is an example for all of us in this society that we live in and in the worldview sometimes that seems to just invade over us. We have a choice, don't we? We can, we can fall down to the idols of this world and, and, and allow them to, to influence us, or we can stand up for what we understand is the truth in this way of life. We can stand up. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said they're not going to, to bow to that. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Guess what? He was mad. I am the ruler. <laughs> I can just see it now. So he, he gets full of fury. And the form of his visions was changed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace <laughs> seven times more than it was heated. What good would that do? Fire is fire. If they're going to burn up, they're going to burn up. But one thing that happened, it was, which is really interesting, they did that. And he commanded the most mighty men that they were uh, in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats and their, uh, and their hoses and their hats and their garments and they were cast in the midst of the fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, the fiery furnace was exceedingly hot, and the flame of the fire slew the men that took them up and threw them in. Wow. What a powerful message that must have been to Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> All right. Then he gets to look in there. Ah. Oh, therefore, the king's commandment was, ur you know, they, in verse, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spoke and said unto the counselors, Did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said, O king, true, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have not burnt, and their form or the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most, now, he's, now he's convinced. Servants of the Most High God, come forth and come here. Then they came forth out of the midst of the fire. And they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. God had protected them completely. He had surrounded them with some kind of force field, and there was nothing, nothing on them. And so God protected them. But they, the point is, this was an idolatrous um, idol that they were commanded to bow, bow down to. And they stood up and they said, God will protect us or not. We are not going to bow down to this idol. For each of us, there may come that day when we have to make that decision. Are we going to, are we going to follow God and be <clears throat> strong in that particular area? In chapter 4 now, we find, we find a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has because, of his, because God is working with his first king and trying to get through to him through Daniel, Meshach, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, trying to get through to this king through the powerful miracles that he's showing him. He, he has another dream, and this dream is uh, very disturbing. No one else can say it, but he calls in Daniel, and Daniel tells him what this dream is all about. I'm just going to read a few verses here, and, and I'm just going to skip through this because everybody's very familiar with this and how, how, how Daniel brings this to him. And he's very disturbed himself because maybe he's become a little bit fond of this, this, this world ruler. He says, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, verse 9, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he hasn't really come to understand that God, the only God, the only true God is, in, is, is with God, uh, with Daniel. The spirit of the holy gods is in you. No secret troubles you. Tell me the visions of my dream. I have seen the inter uh, and the interpretation thereof. So, so let me know. Verse 17. 
This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones by the, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets it up over the basis of men. So we've been through that before and we understand that that is exactly what God is. He has the power to set up whoever he wants. And then Daniel goes on in verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come down upon my Lord the king, that they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you to eat of the grass of the oxen, and they shall wet you with the dew of the heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. What we, as biblical Christians, understanding the Bible should have a worldview is that God is the master over the world. He is the master over all the universe. Jesus Christ at his right hand is ready to come to bring the kingdom to this earth. There is power there. He has power over the nations. And when the time is right, when that time is right, all these nations, all these this, at this end will come and they will be subdued by the power of God because he has this power to do whenever he desires. And this is what he did to Nebuchadnezzar, that first world ruler. Picking it back up here in verse, uh, uh, verse 26. Whereas they commanded that they leave a stump of the tree roots, your kingdom shall be sure to you after that you have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my command be acceptable to you and break off your sins by righteousness. Preached the, the gospel message to him. Repent in your inquiries by showing mercy to the poor. It may be a lengthening of your uh, tranquility. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, it's easy to forget things that have been told to you, isn't it? It's easy to walk back into the, into the world, to, to, to just allow yourself to go back into things in the world, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. I heard the interpretation, I know what it all said, but I didn't repent. And he says, oh, my kingdom, the might and my power and my honor and my majesty. And as soon as he said those and the words were out of his mouth, there fell from the voice of heaven, saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you is spoken the kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you to eat of the grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And so we see, and we know that when Nebuchadnezzar came back to his senses, he realized that there was some power that was greater than him. And he had written this down uh, from, from his own perspective and gave it to Daniel. We know down through the ages, there has come down through the ages this Babylonian mystery religion, this Babylonian um, idolatry. It is, permeates the world in a lot of ways, doesn't it? And it needs to be expunged. It needs to be destroyed. And it's going to happen one day. I look forward to this day. In Revelation, the 17th chapter, we see the image of this very um, abomination. That, and it's called an abomination. God thinks it's filthy. He thinks it's nasty. He thinks it's awful. He calls it an abomination. He, he hates what's going on, and one of these days he's going to change this, this world. In verse 3, he carried me, and this is John saying, he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness and saw a woman sitting upon a scholar-covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So at the end, and we're talking about the end of the age, there will be around the world this worldview. And they will be powerful forces, and they're going to be evil powerful forces they're going to be ruling this world. I don't understand exactly how all of it's going to come about. We can see, as the Bible says, we see kind of darkly. But as those days get closer, God will reveal to us. He'll let us know what's going to happen, where it's going to come about. 
and we will be able to preach and teach and help people to understand. But he gives us this understanding that this is a, this is a filthy abomination. He hates it. He doesn't, he doesn't um, uh, it's not going to last very long. In verses uh, 4, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness and her fornication. So, you couldn't be any nastier than this woman sitting on this beast. And upon her forehead was, was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. If you notice in your Bible, this is all capitalized. The emphasis is, this is the most perverse, nastiest being. And we know that it, it's, it's, an, you know, it's an allusion to, to this world ruling whatever it is that's coming. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered a great admiration. And the angel said to me, Wherefore did you marvel? I, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which is, has seven heads and ten horns. And I didn't want to read all of this. I just wanted to, to, to pick up it. Let's, let's drop down to verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. So there's, there's coming this culmination, this powerful culmination of this world power. <clears throat> and they shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. Oh, uh, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength to the beast. So they have one mind. They shall, they shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is a lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called the chosen and faithful. I have that underlined. You need to underline that. You need to understand we're going to be there when we put this abomination down. When we take care of this nasty abomination, we're going to be there. We're going to have a part in this. And he says to me, the waters which you saw, which are, were, were the, which where the whore sits, are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. So it's a, it's, it's a world-dominating um, entity that has permeated its own worldview and its abomination to God. The ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall, uh, shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her. So they're even going to turn on this, this woman. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and agree and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, Rome. Even in my Bible it says Rome, Babylon, mystery, mystery religions, the, all of the filthiness and the, you know, the things that are against God, even though they purport to be um, for Christ. Anyway, let's turn to Isaiah, the second chapter. And, the, and I always read this because I think that it's so important for us to understand that it's not wrong to do what I, if it's in God's hands. Those four things that I said, it's not wrong if in God's hands he lovingly comes down and takes over this world that's about ready to end. That he takes and gains control came to pass in the last days, verse 2, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. It's going to take a struggle. There's going to have to be powerful forces to, to, to bring this, this world into God's hands. And many people shall go and say, verse 2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. People will have to repent, won't they? They'll have to understand the truth. They'll have to repent. They'll have to change. And they'll have to go and they'll have to see the power that God has, has brought to the earth and the loving kindness through Jesus Christ. And they'll learn and they'll be educated. That's not brainwashing, it's truth. It's truth. It's the word of God. It's the love of God. It's the reaching out of God to mankind. 
They shall walk in his ways. They'll hear the word of God. And he shall judge among the nations, shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The benefit of worshiping God will be peace. Would, not, would we not desire to be servant and subservient to a peaceful and loving God that brings peace to this earth, brings truth to this earth, changes men's hearts, brings them to repentance, gives them hope, all of the things that, that God it will bring. Then we have a part in that worldview through Revelation, the second and third chapters. And we read this occasionally because I think it's important for us to be encouraged. Sometimes we get discouraged in the world that we live in. Sometimes trials, tribulations, things that we have to face, uh, we, we just get d discouraged and we need to go back and we need to understand that when the day comes and we are changed and we're in the kingdom of God, there's going to be so many benefits. We can't even imagine all of the benefits that God has for us as his as his children, his kingdom. He gives us a few, just a, just a little bit of a window. It's, it's like, all right, I, I've given you this little window of, of gladness. <laughs> I know you want to be in my kingdom. I know you want to be there. And with patience, you shall be in my kingdom. And he says, here's, here's the things that I'm going to give you. Jesus says, he that has an ear, let him hear. Verse 7. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him that overcomes will I give him to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We shall get a chance to live for all eternity, to partake of that beautiful, wonderful tree of life forever and ever and ever. Verse 11, he that has an ear. And this, these are the, to all of us who are in his way. These are the called out ones, the churches, the assembly of God. He that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Because we have eternal life when we're in this position. When we're in that kingdom, we have eternal life. We'll be living forever. Verse 17, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and a stone with a new, a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Isn't that interesting? We will, and we will gladly receive that name. We'll be so happy to receive that name that was given to us by Christ. That new name that will be given to us as a loving gift from our Savior. Verse 26 through 28. He that overcomes keep my, and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. The vessels of the potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Interesting. We will have power over the nations. We will be able to rule. We will rule with the understanding of God's truth, we will bring them that truth and we will uh, be converting many, many people to this way of life, to the understanding of the true way of life. No more idols, no more falsehoods, no more magicians, no more astrologers. We'll be pointing them to Jesus Christ. 3 verse 5, He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There will become a time when we will stand before the Father and Jesus will confess us in that day. We will be walking in white raiment. We will be clean and pure. And we will have an audience before the Father. And he will confess us and before his angels and they will sing. They will sing at the glory that God has done. In verse 12, He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall, not, uh, he shall not go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of, of my God, 
which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from, the, from and my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So we, we get a private name and a stone, and then we get a public name that everyone will know that we are special, that we have a special position in the kingdom of God. We will be able to, to preach and teach the godly worldview. The godly worldview. As we can do today. You know, Jesus tells us to go out and, and preach the kingdom of God. To go into the whole world and preach the kingdom of God. Sometimes I think that that message is, is lacking because we're not preaching. Sometimes you hear and you're not, they're not preaching the coming kingdom of God on the earth and the changing of these, these abominable things that are on the earth. They're not preaching that. We try. We preach to the best of our ability. The kingdom of God that's coming to this earth, that's going to change this earth. The last verse, verse 21. Verse 21. To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. You know, we'll have crowns. We'll have crowns. Even as I have overcome and sit down with my Father in his throne. So what is the right worldview? <laughs> I mean, I said, what is worldview? But I really was thinking, what is the right worldview? Well, the right worldview is what's in this book. The right, right worldview is the kingdom of God on this earth. The right worldview is the day when God sends Christ to this earth to change all things because mankind will just be at the brink of destroying every living thing on this earth. And he will have to intervene. And when he does, he will bring the true and right worldview, the kingdom of God, to this earth.